Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, we are, we are a people who are called to be a people of faith in all times, in all circumstances, and yet, even as we've been reminded this morning, we are in a particularly challenging time, at least in terms of our own experience. Your people have always faced difficulty. They've always faced the obstacles, the challenges, the cost of faith and faithfulness. And providentially, as we are in the midst of this consideration of these faithful ones who went before, the ones who lived in light of the promise that they hadn't appropriated, the promise that they saw at a distance, the promise of your triumph in Jesus our Lord, the triumph we have read of and considered this morning. We again are those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We are those who look back and see as a matter of historical fact the triumph, the glorification the enthronement of the triumphant Messiah. And we live in light, and I trust in faith of the truth, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. The God who has triumphed in the Son, the God who has triumphed to enthrone the Son at the right hand of power far above all rule and authority, powers and dominion. That is the God we trust. That is the God who is faithful. And Father, we know that your faithfulness is great towards us because your faithfulness is great towards yourself. Let every man be a liar, but God is true. And you remain faithful to your creation, to your purposes for it. Indeed, everything in the heavens and the earth will one day be summed up in the Messiah. And all of the things that we fret over, all of the things that cause us pain and grief and tears and suffering and anguish, all of the things that press us to distraction and discouragement, all of those things will be a matter of a distant past. Our God reigns. And I pray, Father, that our faith is bound to that truth. Lift our eyes and our hearts above the circumstances of the day, the things in which we find ourselves struggling and wrestling, and enable us by your Spirit to catch a vision of the one who is high and lifted up, the one whose name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
the one whose word will prevail. The triumph that has been begun in him and is building its fruitfulness will one day take everything into its grasp. May we prove faithful with that truth in our own generation. Help us in these things. Encourage us in this time. Give us courage. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Last week we looked at at Joseph and saw that the writer picked particularly with him the circumstance of faith that involved his dying hope. All of the things that Joseph did that we could say would attest to his faith, the writer chose to focus on the forward-looking quality, particularly of, of Joseph's faith as he came to the end of his life. The confidence that one day... God would bring his people out of Egypt. Egypt would not be the final word. And as I said to you last time, to me, what, what is maybe marked about that or, or perhaps startling about it that we don't tend to think about is Joseph's vision, his, his heart, his, his longing was set on, on a deliverance from a circumstance in which he was essentially the ruler of Egypt. Pharaoh said, no one will lift his hand or his foot except by your command. Joseph was the greatest man in all Egypt other than Pharaoh himself. Prosperous, powerful. He brought his family there. They had security. They had food. They had the best of the land of Egypt. And yet Joseph went to his death not saying, thank you, God, for all of the ways in which you bless me in this present time, in this present circumstance. But he said to his brethren, God will prove faithful to his promise. He will bring us from this place. He will give us the land he, pl- he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, Jake, so Joseph's faith in terms of what the writer focused on was that exodus that was to come. An exodus that was to come. And as I said, I don't think that Joseph understood necessarily that the times were going to get hard. He was thinking of Exodus in terms of the fact that if God was going to keep his word to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Egypt could not be the final residing place, the final habitation for his family, for his kinsmen. God would bring them out. One day he would do what he said and he would gather his people into that land that he had promised them. Well, we who are, we know the story and we look back on it. We know that in fact, God had promised to do this work of exodus, not simply as a departure from Egypt, but as a great deliverance, a great work of deliverance. And that meant that whether Joseph understood it or not, the fortunes of the people of Israel in Egypt were going to change. There was no need for a deliverance from a circumstance of affluence and and security and a kind of liberty within the land, the favor of the Pharaoh, the favor of the rulers of Egypt. But God knew that this was going to be a great deliverance. 
And another thing that he knew that wasn't clear to Joseph, and I don't even believe this morning as we start moving forward with the writer's treatment of Moses, that initially even Israel understood that God had intended to accomplish this deliverance through a human agent. If you go back and look at Genesis 15, God said you will be enslaved, depressed for 400 years, and then I will bring you out. I will bring you out with a great deliverance. But how God would do this, my point is that there wasn't a lot of clarity of how this was going to work itself out. But there was a complete trust. Even though the circumstances were going to greatly change for the sons of Israel, when Joseph died and told his family, his kinsmen around him, when God brings you out, take my bones with you. He had no idea what was coming. He only knew that God would prove faithful. That God's faithfulness to him was his faithfulness to his own purposes, to his own promises. And as I keep emphasizing, faith is not just some kind of abstract trust or confidence that things are going to go well or God cares about me in some abstract sense. Faith is a confidence that the God who has spoken and pledged is true. He will do what he has purposed to do. And as that implicates individual people, it is as they are pieces in that purpose. Servants, agents, instruments, recipients of the blessing and the outcome of that purpose. But the God who is promised is faithful. I was thinking about this even as Cliff was reading from Romans 8, because in this great doxology of the God who is faithful, what can separate us from the love of God? He who did not spare his son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not together with him give us all things? What separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? The obvious response of Jewish believers in Rome would be to say, well, what do we make of God's faithfulness to Israel? It seems as if he has forsaken that covenant people and is now moving in a different direction. And Paul says in Romans 9, it is not as if the promises of God have failed. Not all Israel is Israel. In other words, you've misunderstood the promises of God. God has not been unfaithful. Even Israel's struggle with the Messiah himself Jesus of Nazareth was not that God had in any way deviated from what he said and promised he was going to do. It's that they didn't perceive that purpose and that promise, that work of God in what they saw in Jesus himself. Even John the Baptist struggled with it. When he's in prison, he sends his disciples to say, are you the one or should we look for another? Jesus said, all the law and the prophets, right? The scriptures, the law has prophesied until John. And blessed are those who do not stumble over me. Go back and tell John what you see and hear. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. The good news is preached to the poor. That was the Isianic picture of the Messiah who would come. And John knew he was the forerunner, right? Who are you? Are you the Christ? No, I'm the one of whom it's written. Uh, The Lord has sent me before to announce his coming, right? Prepare the way of the Lord, Isaiah 40. 
And Jesus said, go back and tell John all of what is happening is exactly what was promised that the Messiah would do, that the forerunner would herald. Blessed are those who are kept from stumbling over me. God is ever faithful, but it doesn't mean that it's going to look like what we expect necessarily. So God had promised a great deliverance, or at least his purpose was a great deliverance. And it would come through a human agent, even though there was never anything from Abraham forward in which God said, I'm going to raise up a deliverer. Until you get to the book of Exodus and there's the identification of Moses, God never says, here's the way it's going to work. And that becomes important even in what we consider today when we look at the writer as he begins to consider Moses and he looks at the faith of Moses' parents. He now has several verses all connected with Moses. Moses himself, first Moses' parents, then Moses' involvement with the children of Israel, God's work through Moses. The exodus that Joseph died in faith of is now coming into the picture. And so the writer is following, the Hebrews writer is following the Genesis narrative and into Exodus as Genesis ends with Joseph and Exodus begins with the birth of Moses. It jumps forward in time, as it were, to the time that Joseph died in faith of. So the writer is very much following the scriptural narrative, the way in which it presents its story, the way in which it uh, sets forth its own points of emphasis and orientation. But again, for there to be a great deliverance, the fortunes of the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, Joseph's brethren, their fortunes have to change from what they were at the time that Joseph was alive. So today we're just going to consider verse 23 as introducing this section in which the Hebrews writer deals with Moses. But he says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They were not afraid of the king's edict. And the first thing that I want to mention, and I know I've said this before, but it's important to keep reiterating this, is that once again, consistent with what he does with all of the individuals that he mentions, the writer does not associate, again, the focus is on Moses' parents, but he doesn't associate their faith with what they believe. He doesn't even say anything about what they believe. Because the Exodus text doesn't say what Moses' parents believed. It says what they did. In each of these instances, the issue of faith and faith demonstrated is shown by a course of action. It is shown as something that is done. And that ought to take our minds back even to James' treatment of faith and works. Something that stumbled Martin Luther and something that has stumbled a lot of Christians because of how we get into this thing of thinking about salvation. Am I saved by my faith or am I saved by my works? You can't put the two together. And we even want to script Paul into that narrative. 
But the writer's point is that faith, as I've said, is not some sort of abstract, arbitrary confidence, I believe, for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. Faith is saying the God who has spoken is true, and he will do what he has said. Do I know what that will look like? No. But he will prove true. Faith is owning the faithfulness of God. Faith is owning the faithfulness of God, and therefore faith conforms to that owning of the faithfulness of God. That's why faith without works is dead. And we're going to see that even as we move forward. But, you know, it's interesting even that James uses the example of Rahab, a Canaanite, didn't have the law of Moses, wasn't doing the works of the moral law or anything like that. What was her work that she did? She said, when God gives you the city, remember me and my family. What did she do? She believed what she had come to understand about the God of Israel. She wasn't even an Israelite. Her doing versus her faith was not a matter of keeping commandments or whatever. There were no commandments for her to keep. She believed what had been made known to her, and she entrusted herself to that in the way that she ordered her life and her conduct and her decisions. That's what it's all about. It's that simple. Faithfulness. The work of faith is faithfulness. So he affirms their faith not by explaining to his readers what they believed about this baby that was born to them, but what they did, what they did. And the act of faith that he specifically mentions here, again, keeping very tightly to the text of Genesis or of Exodus, rather, what they did was that they shielded their newborn baby from the Pharaoh's edict. Now, that's all that the writer of Hebrews says, but he's writing to Jewish believers who obviously knew the story. And so we have to know the story, too, to really understand what he's getting at. So if you want to flip back to Exodus chapter 1, we're going to be tracking the story through that. Because the circumstance of this action is very important. Just taken in itself, you'd say, well, what, what, why do they have to protect their baby? Or what, you know, what was this edict? What is this all about? But the context for this act of faith was the horrific circumstance in which the children of Israel, Jacob's descendants, had now found themselves. Joseph has died. The Pharaoh that Joseph served, the Pharaoh who was favorable to Joseph's family, they're gone. And the text says, well, let's just read the first few verses. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one with his household. Now he names the the sons of Jacob. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already there. And Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, multiplied, became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. 
Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to the people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. A new king who didn't remember Joseph. Enough years have passed that Joseph's great works on behalf of Egypt have been forgotten. The Egyptians have forgotten how Joseph served the nation. And all they see is this strange foreign people that are beginning to increase in numbers. Even in a very supernatural sort of way. And I don't want to belabor this. You can study this yourself. But we often say, okay, they were 430 years in Egypt. That's not true. That comes from a reading of Exodus 12, but, but that's from the Masoretic text, which our oldest version of it goes to about the 10th century. But if you go back to older witnesses, like the Samaritan Pentateuch, like the Septuagint, like Josephus, and even Paul himself in Galatians 3, the 430 years is from the Abrahamic covenant to the Mosaic covenant. So the older readings of Genesis or of Exodus 12 say now the sons of Israel, it was 430 years in Egypt and in Canaan. Paul says from the promise of Abraham to the law was 430 years. You can go and read that in Galatians 3. And even if you use the Masoretic text itself, it witnesses against itself. The the Masoretic text is the Hebrew Old Testament that we have access to. It witnesses against itself in that Levi's son, Koath, was among those that went with Jacob and his family to Egypt. And Moses is his grandson. And if you add up the ages, you can't get to 430 even if the son is born on the day that the father died and the grandson is born on the day that the son died. Well, what's my point in saying that? Well, Joseph, after his family came to Egypt, lived for about another 70 years. He was about, the text says he was 30 when he stood before Pharaoh and was exalted after he interpreted the dreams. And he died at 110 He stood before Pharaoh, then we know he had seven years at least, right, of famine or of plenty when they stored up all the grain, and then seven years of famine, and it was two years into that when Jacob and the family came. So Joseph was about 40 when his family came to Egypt, and he died at 110. So you have 215 years in Egypt total, 70 of that was when Joseph was alive. So you had essentially from the time that Joseph died less than 150 years. At whatever point the suffering begins, the point of all of that is to say that when we say, wow, how could they become so massive in numbers, such, such a mighty people that fill the whole land in 400 years, it wasn't that. It was in 200 years. Makes it even more a sense of, wow, what's going on here? These people are multiplying like rabbits. What, you know, they're filling the whole land. What's going on here? 
And the point of that is that the people of Egypt became more and more concerned. And even the Pharaoh himself, not just because of their sheer numbers, but if they allied themselves together with one of Egypt's enemies, they could become a determining factor in the overthrow of Egypt. Verse 10 says, Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and in the event of war they join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh's storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. So it was probably a little over a hundred years that they were actually enslaved and, you know, hard, hard oppressed. But that was Pharaoh's answer to the problem of this people that are multiplying and filling the land. And it makes sense. An exhausted, starving, uh, broken people are not much of an adversary. You work them to death. You starve them. They're not going to be much of an adversary. And at the same time, that sort of hard labor, certainly in the ancient world, where their nutrition was terrible and hygiene was terrible, this is a good way to deplete their numbers. And you also kill two birds with one stone in that we get a ton of free labor. They were building the great cities of Egypt. So he had a slave labor force that he was oppressing that would deplete their numbers and would also break them and debilitate them as a people. It was a very wise decision to make if you want to deal with this people. They're overrunning the land. So that's what Pharaoh did. But just as their fears about Israel, these Jewish people, these Hebrews, rising up and joining with their enemies, just as that fear wasn't realized, neither were Pharaoh's aims. You would fully expect, taking that course of action, that the, that the Hebrew population would, continue, would start depleting at a rapid rate. But the text says the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied the more they spread out. That's not the way things work. When you take this sort of action against a people, you destroy them. At the very least, you seriously deplete their numbers, and yet it was not working that way. And I think the point is that the Egyptians said, there's something going on here. There's something going on here. So the decision then was, we will have the Hebrew midwives start killing all of the male babies that are born. That will surely deplete their numbers. It will destroy, ultimately, future generations, right? China found out what happens when you start killing all of the female babies, Now they're actually putting policies and incentives into place to have more children because their population is doing this. It doesn't matter whether you're killing male babies or female babies. Now the obvious reason they wanted to kill the male babies is the males represent the strength of the nation, the fighting strength, the military strength. 
But surely this would deplete, this would deplete their numbers. But the text says that the midwives feared God. I'm sure some of them out of, you know, fear of retribution or whatever did what Pharaoh asked. But the general consensus of the text is that the midwives feared God and they refused to do that. And so what they told Pharaoh is that the Hebrew women are much more hardy. They have a great, stronger vitality and constitution than the Egyptian women. And so by the time we get there, they've already given birth. It's too late to take the baby from the womb and, and kill it. Now, whether Pharaoh believed that or not, he said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to entrust this to my own people. If the Hebrew midwives will not do this, and the text says almost as a parenthesis that God blessed the midwives and he gave them families and he multiplied them. So this multiplication thing just keeps going on and on and on and on in spite of what Egypt is trying to do to them. So it says in in, um, verse 22, the end of chapter 1 of Exodus, the Pharaoh commanded his people saying, every son who's born, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. And the text doesn't say this, but when you look at the circumstance, you you see the extent and and the, the, the compelling nature of the fear and the concern that the Pharaoh and the Egyptians had, that they were willing ultimately to destroy their own slave labor, destroy their own free workers for the sake of securing their well-being as a nation. They were so afraid of what was happening and the strangeness of this circumstance. You don't oppress and torture a people like that and they just keep multiplying. It doesn't work that way. And they knew that eventually, if this was followed through, killing all the male babies, that eventually all of the Hebrew people would be gone in the land of Egypt. They were gradually... Um, destroying their free workforce. And yet, saving the nation was more important than keeping their slave labor. They were not stupid people. They knew they were destroying their labor force by doing this, but they were willing to do it. Well, that's the context in which uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about now Moses' parents and their faith. It was the context of Moses' birth. And it explains their action in concealing him. Now, we might look at that and we say, well, of course, under the threat of death, I mean, even apart from the threat of death, every parent is instinctively protective of his child. No parent is going to put his child at risk, take his baby and, you know, set him out on the sidewalk or whatever. All parents are going to protect their children. So obviously, this is going to be a situation where they're going to try to protect their son, where there's this threat of death. But the narrative and the writer of Hebrews uh, particularly ascribes this action not to parental care and concern in, in, in some general sense, but to the fact of what the parents perceived about their child. 
They saw that he was a beautiful or comely or lovely, different, different ways of rendering that child. And so they hid him. They hid him. And even that, if we don't understand what's being got at, it's easy to misunderstand that. You know, we all joke about, we, we tell people, oh, what a beautiful baby. And we're thinking, man, that's a pretty homely baby, right? But in this circumstance, you know, they look and they say, wow, this is such a pretty baby. He's so perfect. You know, all of his features, all of his form. Look at that, that little angelic face. What an attractive baby. We can't let that baby die. But that's not the point the writer is making. Specifically, and again, he's drawing from the Exodus account. But he says that the response of the parents was not natural protective instinct. It wasn't, what an attractive baby. We've got to hang on to this one. It was an act of faith. So what is the relationship between the beauty of this baby and, and the faith of the parents? Well, it's, it's kind of hard in some sense because this adjective that's translated beautiful, uh, the only two places it's used in the New Testament is here. And when Stephen talks about the exact same event, you know, as he's giving his uh, uh, monologue, his defense to those you know, who are coming against him. When he tells Israel's story culminating with the Messiah in Acts 7, he uses the same term. And the reason they use that term is because this is the Greek adjective that is, is in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Exodus account. If you go back and look at the Exodus account in Greek in in chapter 2, verse 2, and the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. That's what Exodus says. That's what the writer's drawing on. And And he, throughout, the writer of Hebrews uses the Septuagint. So he's taking the Septuagint version, the Greek version of the Old Testament, and he's just bringing that word into the, into his own treatment. But that's the only time that adjective is used in the New Testament. And it's actually very rare, only a couple of times in the Old Testament. So you have to kind of look outside of the text. But the general sense of the word, it carries the idea of something that has a majesty or a splendor. A kind of unusual um, elegance about it. It's kind of a city term. You know, we talk about a beautiful city. Look at the way this is laid out. You know, look at the architecture, whatever. If it's used of people, it tends to connote these ideas either of an outward beauty or a more intrinsic thing of nobility or dignity, a pedigree being well-bred, you know, coming from, from a, a good stock or whatever, you know, nobility. It's that sort of an idea. Well, I think here what it seems to suggest, at least to me, is that Moses' parents detected in him, they didn't just say, what a pretty baby, look at those eyes, look at that nose. They detected in him a kind of distinction. They saw something in him that caused them to think that God's hand was on him in an unusual way, in a peculiar way. 
There was something about that child that caused them to think this is a child that God's hand is on in a peculiar way. And we don't know anything more than that. But the way that, that um, Stephen interprets this in Acts is he says that when the child was born, he was beautiful in the sight of God. So he attaches that distinction to something that God recognized or that God had established, not just what the parents saw in their own child. If you go back and look at Acts 7, you'll see that he was lovely or beautiful in the sight of God. Well, I think that's the context in which we we can understand how what they saw in their child was an act of faith. We don't know specifically what they thought. We don't know what they concluded. We don't know what they exactly perceived. But they were convinced from what they perceived in this child that he must not be allowed to die. The God who had distinguished him surely had a purpose for that distinction. And I don't think it was just about physical appearance. There was something that they were allowed to see in that son that said, this is a child that God has set apart for something. It wasn't just, he's our baby, we can't let him die. Uh, Isn't he a good-looking, cute little baby? It wasn't that. And once again, that's the sense in which this was an act of faith. They hid him because they believed that he was going to play a role in God's purposes for Israel and therefore ultimately for the world. They didn't know all of what we know, even about the unfolding of the salvation history, but they did understand the covenant that God had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the fact that the calling and the singling out and the establishing of the covenant family of Israel was unto God's purpose for the whole world. In you, all the families of the earth would be blessed. They knew that history. Israel understood that its identity, the Jewish people, even in Egypt, they understood that somehow God had set them apart for the sake of his purposes for the world. Ultimately, his design to renew and restore all things and banish the curse. And somehow, this child played into that purpose. That doesn't imply that they saw him the way God saw him, the way God, they they weren't saying, oh, this is the deliverer that God has promised who is going to lead us out of our slavery. God hadn't said that. God, as I mentioned earlier, had never said, I'm going to raise up a human deliverer. He said, I will deliver you when the time comes. And even in Genesis 15, nothing is said about Egypt. It's just you will be enslaved enslaved and oppressed in a context, in a habitation of difficulty, which included Canaan for that 215 years. But they didn't say, oh, this is the deliverer that God has promised. They didn't know that. The point is merely believing, somehow coming to the conviction that God had a purpose for that son, that was enough for them. And they preserved him in faith. And why do I emphasize that? Because faith doesn't mean that we can connect all the dots. 
It doesn't mean that we can say, oh, okay, well, this is because of this, and then it's going to be this, and then it's going to be that, and then it's going to be the next thing. They had some sense that this child was important to God's purpose, which would one day see them delivered from Egypt. But we don't know what they understood. This text doesn't tell us. The writer doesn't tell us. They didn't need to know what that purpose was. It was enough to know that Israel's God would prove faithful to his covenant promises to their fathers. And it was with that faith that they shielded their son, not fearing the king's edict. Now that's what the writer tells us, and then from there he jumps forward to Moses. And what I want to do in closing today is fill in that gap because I think the next piece of it was also significant as a continuation of the parents' faith. The writer doesn't discuss this part, but it's clearly in his mind because he notes that they hid him for three months. He says specifically, for three months. So he knows the story. He knows that the thing that he mentions was not the end of the issue of the story of Moses' parents and their faith regarding their son. They concealed him as a matter of faith, but they also recognized this isn't going to last forever. You can keep a baby quiet and hidden for a while, but eventually it becomes impossible to keep a baby hidden. Especially in the context of that world where a family might live in a, you know, a 10 by 10 room and all these houses are right on top of each other. You know, they're not out on 40 acres where nobody knows what's going on. You can't hide a child for long. You can't hide a baby for long. And so when he reaches three months of age, he's still little, but at that point they decide the only way, the best hope, maybe is the way to put it, the best hope of saving this baby from the Nile River is to deliver him into the Nile River. I don't know if you've thought about that. The way to keep him from death in the Nile is to give him to the Nile, but not to give him to the Nile through the hands of Egyptians, but to give him to the Nile as into God's hand. And this circumstance, I, again, I don't know if you've thought of it. I don't see many commentators getting at this. But this, to put it into the, into the historical context and understand what's happening here, I think shows a profound significance to that action. What happens at three months. The Egyptians believed that the Nile River, I mean, it was one of the most significant features in the land of Egypt. And it's a very dry and barren land. And the Nile has a very predictable seasonal rising and falling. The weather is very predictable there. And the Egyptians viewed the Nile River as the manifest power of their deity, Hapi. They associate a lot of natural phenomenon with gods and goddesses. You know, they were a polytheistic people. 
But the Nile River, even to the point where sometimes it's deified or, or close to being deified, but the Nile River was the manifest power of their god, Hapi. He was the god of life, the god of peace, the god of well-being, because the Nile was life to Egypt. And they lived in view of its flooding, you know, it overflowing its banks in, in the season. That's where their water came from. Water is life, especially in a land like that. We take it for granted, you turn on a faucet. And I don't know if you young people ever think about it, but you ever wonder why every town and city is built on a river? There's a reason. You need water, right? You got to have water. The Nile represented Egypt's life and well-being, And so when Pharaoh says to his Egyptian subjects, take these Hebrew baby boys who represented the life and well-being of the Hebrew people among them, right, going forward, the life and well-being of the nation, the Hebrew people, was in these boys. And when he said, take and throw them into the Nile, that was signifying, it, it, the, the people then would have understood that that represented the triumph of Egypt's power, the triumph of Egypt's power over the Hebrews and their God. That which is our protector, that which gives us life, that which secures our peace and well-being, we deliver these children over to that power to secure our life, to secure our well-being. To keep us safe. And the triumph of the Nile over these baby boys meant to them the triumph of their gods, the triumph of the particular god of the Nile, at least, over the god of the Hebrews. In the ancient world, whichever people came out on top, it was the triumph of their gods. You see that in Isaiah, you see it in Jeremiah, that the gods of the nations are overcome by the Babylonians, right? When they go and they conquer, they say all the gods of these people have fallen to us. That's how great we are. In the ancient world, people had their own deities. They had their own, it was a part of who they were. Their identity was in their gods who cared about them and who fought for them. And when my army prevails in war, it's because my god or gods are mightier than your gods, or at least at this point in time, my gods are more favorable to us than your gods are to you. So this was more than just let's kill these babies. This was a way to demonstrate, demonstrate the triumph of Egypt over the Hebrews. So when... Amram and Jochebed, Moses' parents, when they took their little baby and they put him in his own little ark, which should take our minds back to the flood, and I won't develop all of that, but it's the same word, the same idea. When they make him a little ark and they take him and they put him into the Nile in the reeds by the riverbank, they were actually testifying to two things. Our God is greater than the God of the Nile, and we trust our God.
we trust our God. It's really a marvelous irony, and I, I think sometimes it passes us by, but Moses' parents are doing exactly what the Pharaoh had commanded. They are, their son is being delivered over to the Nile. They're relinquishing him to the Nile. But they did so not as affirming and submitting to Egypt's power and the power of its gods, but as denying and resisting that power and holding in faith to the power of their own God. And not just to power in that God is sovereign, God is omnipotent, God is omniscient, God is omnipotent. It's not in some abstract, arbitrary sense. But the God who is faithful, who somehow this boy is written into his purposes, that God will protect him and see to it that those purposes are fulfilled. And as I said, the Hebrews writer didn't deal with this part of the story, but he obviously had it in mind. And he obviously understood that that action in handing uh, the baby, a three-month-old baby, over to the Nile in that way was itself an act of faith. They had no way of knowing what awaited that child. You say, well, but they had their daughter there watching. Yeah, she's watching, but that doesn't mean she can secure the outcome. You put a three-month-old baby in a river, even if it's in the reeds, how long is that baby going to live exposed to the elements? And and crying if an Egyptian comes along and finds him and recognizes him as a Hebrew baby, what is he going to do? He's going to throw him into the river. Hey, I'm an Egyptian. You know, I've been given an order by the Pharaoh. This is what we're charged with doing. This is what we need to do. And even if he wasn't willing to take this three-month-old baby and chuck him into the river, he's not going to help him. What am I going to do with the Hebrew baby? I'm going to bring a Hebrew baby into my house and bring the wrath of Pharaoh, you know, and the the rulers down around my neck? No, I'm not going to do that. And even if a Hebrew found him, same situation. Most likely it's a, hey, I'm not touching that one. You know, we've been told how we're to deal with these babies. I'm not getting involved. And even if they were wanting to get involved, we're oppressed. We're starving. I can't even feed my own children. I'm going to take another baby into my house now. Another child to die in the midst of all of this. They had every reason to expect that their son would die looking at things through the way things work in the world. They had every reason to expect that this boy would die. Everything would seem to indicate that, and yet they were convinced that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're going to see this in Exodus, when God reveals himself to Moses, how does he do it? Does he say, I'm God, I'm the true God, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? the God who has covenanted, the God who has pledged, the God who has stated his purpose. And I've remembered my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were convinced that God would be faithful, that somehow this child was written into his purpose, and that being the case, God would surely take care of him and see to it that he would survive to fulfill his calling. They were willing to put him into a situation a helpless baby, they were willing to give him over and and trust that God would deal with it. 
And I think that's a very timely thing in a lot of ways in our culture. I thought about this a lot this week. We as parents, and certainly we as Christian parents, worry about our kids. And I think especially now, what's going to happen to them? What's going to happen in this culture? What's going to happen if their school shuts down? What's going to happen if this? What's going to happen if that? And the faith of these parents was to say, we believe the God who has promised. We don't know. They had no way of knowing what this would hold in the short term or in the long term. They had no way of knowing. And in fact, they would have never guessed how it was going to play out. They didn't know, okay, Pharaoh's daughter is going to come along, and when she does, then he'll end up being, you know, a prince in the house of of Egypt. They didn't know that. They had every reason to expect all things being equal, that if he was found, he would be killed. If he wasn't found, he would die in the elements. And they didn't even know what his purpose was in God's purpose, but they somehow believed that he he had a role to play in that. And they were willing to give him over to God. It's what Abraham did with Isaac, right? But we don't do that. We hold on tightly. We cling. We got to secure. We got to keep safe. You see, parents now who are willing to roll over to whatever the government requires of them because in the short term it will help their children. Don't we? We look at the short term and we say, Here, I don't want my kids to suffer. I don't want my kids to, I don't want to put them at risk. I don't want anything to possibly go wrong for them. So I'll do whatever I have to do to keep them safe. And we live faithless lives. I'll do whatever I have to do to keep myself safe. In, in the, the class that I've been teaching in school I, with the kids this week, I put in front of them Francis Schaeffer's statements that the only two values left in Western society that are absolutely non-negotiable, that are absolute, are the right of personal peace and the right of prosperity. I have the right to be left alone, to not be disturbed, not be troubled, not be bothered, not have to get into messy situations, and I have the right to prosper. I have a right to the white picket fence. I have the right to, you know, life looking the way that I want it to look. And his point is when those are the only two things we care about, everything else can be sacrificed. And if we think that the powers that be will not use that to test us, if we think that God will not use the powers to be to test us as to whether we will be faithful or not, because there's a downside, because there's a cost then we're kidding ourselves. There's always a cost to faithfulness, and it doesn't mean necessarily you're going to lose your job. It doesn't mean necessarily you're going to go to jail. It doesn't mean necessarily you're going to be killed. But there are a million ways all the time at which our commitment, our tenacity, our clinging to the God who is faithful will be tested. 
And we will often be willing to let go of that for the thing that seems good and needful and right and proper in the moment. Right? The education of our kids is foremost. Whatever we have to do to keep them in school, really, is that what's foremost? I can't, and I'm not saying, I mean, I know it's tough. You don't comply, you're going to lose your job. What do you do? Can we trust God to provide for us? Can we trust that God even provides for us as we are willing to get our own hands messy with one another? This may seem like a distant, remote thing that has no relevance to us, but this is what it's meant for God's people to be faithful in every generation. In every generation. There's always a challenge to faithfulness, always. And it's a good thing in the sense of what we're enduring now in that that there's a winnowing that's taking place. People are having to actually think about what they believe. Faith is not, own, faith is not agreeing with a list of doctrinal propositions. Faith is owning the God who is true. Rome didn't care if you had your own religion that you wanted to embrace, as long as you paid fealty to Caesar. Moses' parents believed God, and they were willing to entrust their God to, the God, to, the, to him as the one who is faithful. It was interesting, I, I had no idea that Cliff was going to read that passage from 1 John, but that's exactly what I had in my mind this week. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Does that victory mean I'm going to sail through life on a silk pillow? Does it mean I'm going to dance on the high places while everybody else suffers down there? No. The victory is the triumph of faith, not the triumph of victory in this life. Jesus is the quintessential example of the man whose faith overcame the world and he died on a cross. Victory doesn't mean ease. Victory means the approbation of God. It means holding to what is true. It means being testifiers of truth in the world. Father, these are days which certainly we have to step back and think about these things. And I think of even the young people coming up. We have been allowed to live in a culture in which personal peace and prosperity have not only been values that we've clung to, but things that we've been able to cling to in a successful way. We who are the baby boomers have grown up in an affluent, peaceful 
nation, but how much more our children. And they are the ones who will carry the baton of faith and faithfulness in the decades to come. I pray that we would be examples of faith. I pray that we would be testifiers of faith. I pray that we would encourage and help them and educate them in that way. That they will be the godly ones in the world in the coming years. And it may mean deprivation. It it may mean imprisonment. It may mean death. But we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And Father, we pray that in this testing, trying, purifying, winnowing time, that we too would learn what it means to entrust ourselves to a faithful God in doing what is right. That we would be a people of conviction. A people like even Martin Luther who could say, here I stand, I can do no other. In a world that runs on lies, in a world that is comfortable with compromise and concession for the sake of immediate happy outcomes, I pray that we will be a people of faith. That we will overcome the world in that way. These Hebrews who were receiving this epistle knew what it was to suffer because of their faithfulness. Losing property, losing even kinship, losing so many things in this life. And yet the writer could say to them, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what has been promised. What is that? He who is coming will come and he will not delay. But my one who lives in the right is the one who lives in faith. Father, give us courage, give us resolve, and give us the sense of commitment to one another to stand together, that in the times in which we find ourselves strong, that we would stand with the weak, knowing that the days of our own weakness are sure to come, when we will need to draw on the strength of others. It's a glorious and a grand thing that your design is not the salvation of a bunch of individual people, but the forming of a new human organism in the Messiah. And these are times and opportunities for us to actually live out that truth. To bear one another's burdens, to meet one another's needs, to encourage the faint-hearted, to draw from the strength of others to testify to the world that we are one as the Father and the Son are one, in order that there would be a gospel proclaimed in this world. And so as much as we struggle, as much as we're discouraged, as much as we even can fear and become angered and resentful, this is a glorious opportunity. It is a wake-up call to be the church in the world for the sake of Christ's testimony, for the sake of his glory. I pray that you would help us in these things. Give us courage, give us hope, give us great joy. 
and a deep-seated peace, even in the midst of the storm. Our God is faithful. We ask these things of you in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.